0: Part Four, Chapter One of A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Nopper. Chapter One: Influence of the American Church on Slavery, Part Two. Now, as for the internal slave trade. The very essence of that trade is the buying and selling of human beings for the mere purposes of gain. A master who has slaves transmitted to him, or a master who buys slaves with the purpose of retaining them on his plantation or in his family, can be supposed to have some object in it besides the mere purpose of gain. He may be supposed, in certain cases, to have some regard to the happiness or well-being of the slave. The trader buys and sells for the mere purpose of gain. Concerning this abuse, the Chillicothe Presbytery, in the document to which we have alluded, passed the following resolution: Resolved that the buying, selling, or holding of a slave for the sake of gain is a heinous sin and scandal requiring the cognizance of the judicatories of the church. In the reply from which we have already quoted, Mr. Smiley says, page thirteen, If the buying, selling, and holding of a slave, for the sake of gain, is, as you say, a heinous sin and scandal, then verily three-fourths of all Episcopalians, Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians, in the eleven States of the Union, are of the devil. Again to question whether slaveholders or slave-buyers are of the devil seems to me like calling in question whether God is or is not a true witness that is provided it is god's testimony and not merely the testimony of the chillicothe presbytery that it is a heinous sin and scandal to buy sell and hold slaves again page twenty one if language can convey a clear and definite meaning at all i know not how it can more plainly or unequivocally present to the mind any thought or idea than the twenty-fifth chapter of leviticus clearly and unequivocally establishes the fact that slavery was sanctioned by God Himself, and that buying, selling, holding, and bequeathing slaves as property are regulations which are established by Himself. What language can more explicitly show, not that God winked at slavery merely, but that, to say the least, He gave a written permit to the Hebrews, then the best people in the world, to buy, hold, and bequeath men and women to perpetual servitude, what now becomes of the position of the Chillicothe Presbytery? Is it, indeed, a fact that God once gave a written permission to His own dear people, Ye shall buy, to do that which is in itself sinful? Nay, to do that which the Chillicothe Presbytery says is a heinous sin and scandal? God resolves that His own children may, or rather shall, buy possess and hold bond men and bond women in bondage forever but the chillicothe presbytery resolves that buying selling or holding slaves for the sake of gain is a heinous sin and scandal we do not mean to say that mr smiley had the internal slave trade directly in his mind in writing these sentences but we do say that no slave trader would ask for a more explicit justification of his trade than this lastly in regard to that dissolution of the marriage relation which is the necessary consequence of this kind of trade the following decisions have been made by judicatories of the church the savannah river baptist association in eighteen thirty five in reply to the question whether in a case of involuntary separation of such a character as to preclude all prospect of future intercourse the parties ought to be allowed to marry again answered that such a separation among persons situated as our slaves are, is civilly a separation by death, and they believe that, in the sight of God, it would be so viewed. To forbid second marriages in such cases would be to expose the parties not only to stronger hardships and strong temptation, but to church censure, for acting in obedience to their masters, who cannot be expected to acquiesce in a regulation at variance with justice to the slaves, and to the spirit of that command which regulates marriage among christians the slaves are not free agents and a dissolution by death is not more entirely without their consent and beyond their control than by such separation at the shiloh baptist association which met at gordvine a few years since the following query says the religious herald was presented from hedgman church viz., is a servant whose husband or wife has been sold by his or her master into a distant country to be permitted to marry again the query was referred to a committee who made the following report which after discussion was adopted that in view of the circumstances in which servants in this country are placed the committee are unanimous in the opinion that it is better to permit servants thus circumstanced to take another husband or wife the rev charles c jones who is an earnest and indefatigable laborer for the good of the slave and one who it would be supposed would be likely to feel strongly on this subject if any one would simply remarks in estimating the moral condition of the negroes that as husband and wife are subject to all the vicissitudes of property and may be separated by division of estate debts sales or removals etc etc the marriage relation naturally loses much of its sacredness, and says, It is a contract of convenience, profit, or pleasure, that may be entered into and dissolved at the will of the parties, and that without heinous sin or injury to the property interests of any one. In this sentence he is expressing, as we suppose, the common idea of slaves and masters of the nature of this institution, and not his own. We infer this from the fact that he endeavors in his Catechism to impress on the slave the sacredness and perpetuity of the relation. But when the most pious and devoted men that the South has, and those professing to spend their lives for the service of the slave, thus calmly and without any reprobation, contemplate this state of things as a state with which Christianity does not call on them to interfere, what can be expected of the world in general? It is to be remarked, with regard to the sentiments of Mr. Smiley's pamphlet, that they are endorsed in the appendix by a document in the name of two presbyteries, which document, though with less minuteness of investigation, takes the same ground with Mr. Smiley. This Rev. James Smiley was one who, in company with the Rev. John L. Montgomery, was appointed by the Synod of Mississippi, in 1839, to write or compile a catechism for the instruction of the Negroes, Mr. Jones says in his History of the Religious Instruction of the Negroes, page 83, The Reverend James Smiley and the Reverend C. Blair are engaged in this good work of enlightening the Negroes systematically and constantly in Mississippi. The former clergyman is characterized as an aged and indefatigable father. His success in enlightening the Negroes has been very great a large proportion of the negroes in his old church can recite both williston's and the westminster catechism very accurately the writer really wishes that it were in her power to make copious extracts from mr smiley's pamphlet a great deal could be learned from it as to what style of mind and habits of thought and modes of viewing religious subjects are likely to grow up under such an institution the man is undoubtedly and heartily sincere in his opinions and appears to maintain them with the most abounding and triumphant joyfulness as the very latest improvement in theological knowledge we are tempted to present a part of his introduction simply for the light it gives us on the style of thinking which is to be found on our southwestern waters in presenting the following review to the public the author was not entirely or mainly influenced by a desire or hope to correct the views of the chillicothe presbytery he had hoped the publication would be of essential service to others as well as to the presbytery from his intercourse with religious societies of all denominations in mississippi and louisiana he was aware that the abolition maxim namely that slavery is in itself sinful had gained on and entwined itself among the religious and conscientious scruples of many in the community so far as not only to render them unhappy but to draw off the attention from the great and important duty of a householder to his household. The eye of the mind, resting on slavery itself as a corrupt fountain, from which of necessity nothing but corrupt streams could flow, was incessantly employed in search of some plan, by which with safety the fountain could, in some future time, be entirely dried up never reflecting or dreaming that slavery, in itself considered, was an innoxious relation, and that the whole error rested in the neglect of the relative duties of the relation. If there be a consciousness of guilt resting on the mind, it is all the same as to the effect whether the conscience is or is not right. Although the Word of God alone ought to be the guide of conscience, yet it is not always the case. Hence conscientious scruples sometimes exist for neglecting to do that which the Word of God condemns. The Bornean, who neglects to kill his father and to eat him with his dates when he has become old, is sorely tortured by the ringings of a guilty conscience, when his filial tenderness and sympathy have gained the ascendancy over his apprehended duty of killing his parent. In like manner many a slaveholder, whose conscience is guided not by the Word of God, but by the doctrines of men is often suffering the lashes of a guilty conscience even when he renders to his slave that which is just and equal according to the scriptures simply because he does not emancipate his slave irrespective of the benefit or injury done by such an act how beautiful upon the mountains in the apprehension of the reviewer would be the feat of him that would bring to the Bornean the glad tidings that his conduct in sparing the life of his tender and affectionate parent was no sin equally beautiful and delightful does the reviewer trust will it be to an honest scrupulous and conscientious slaveholder to learn from the word of god the glad tidings that slavery itself is not sinful released now from an incubus that paralyzed his energies in discharge of duty toward his slaves he goes forth cheerfully to energetic action. It is not now as formerly when he viewed slavery as, in itself, sinful. He can now pray with the hope of being heard that God will bless his exertions to train up his slaves in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, whereas before he was retarded by this consideration. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, Instead of hanging down his head, moping and brooding over his condition as formerly, without action, he raises his head, and moves on cheerfully in the plain path of duty. He is no more tempted to look askance at the word of God, in saying, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Come to filch from me my slaves, which, while not enriching them, leaves me poor indeed. Instead of viewing the Word of God as formerly come with whips and scorpions to chastise Him into Paradise, he feels that its ways are ways of pleasantness, and its paths peace. Distinguishing now between the real Word of God and what are only the doctrines and commandments of men, the mystery is solved, which was before insolvable, namely, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. If you should undertake to answer such a man by saying that his argument proves too much, that neither Christ nor his Apostles bore any explicit testimony against the gladiatorial shows and the sports of the arena, and therefore it would be right to get them up in America, the probability seems to be that he would hardly assent to it, and think, on the whole, that it might be a good speculation. As a further specimen of the free and easy facetiousness which seems to be a trait in this production, see, on page 58, where the Latin motto, Facilis descensus averne, sed revocare, etc., receives the following quite free and truly Western translation, which he good-naturedly says is given for the benefit of those who do not understand Latin, it is easy to go to the devil, but the devil to get back some uncharitable people might perhaps say that the preachers of such doctrines are as likely as anybody to have an experimental knowledge on this point the idea of this jovial old father instructing a class of black sams or young topsies in the mysteries of the assembly's catechism is truly picturesque that mr smiley's opinions on the subject of slavery have been amply supported and carried out by leading clergymen in every denomination we might give volumes of quotations to show a second head however is yet to be considered with regard to the influence of the southern church and clergy it is well known that the southern political community have taken their stand upon the position that the institution of slavery shall not be open to discussion in many of the slave states stringent laws exist subjecting fine and imprisonment and even death any who speak or publish anything on the subject, except in its favor. They have not only done this with regard to citizens of slave states, but they have shown the strongest disposition to do it with regard to citizens of free states, and when these discussions could not be repelled by regular law, they have encouraged the use of illegal measures. In the published letters and speeches of Horace Mann, the following examples are given. Page 467. In 1831, the legislature of georgia offered $5000 to anyone who would arrest and bring to trial and conviction in georgia a citizen of massachusetts named william lloyd garrison this law was approved by w lumpkin governor december 26 1831 at a meeting of slaveholders held at stirling in the same state september 4 1835 it was formally recommended to the governor to offer by proclamation $5,000 reward for the apprehension of any one of ten persons, citizens, with one exception, of New York and Massachusetts, whose names were given. The Milledgeville, Georgia, Federal Union, of February 1, 1836, contained an offer of $10,000 for the arrest and kidnapping of the Reverend A. A. Phelps of New York, the committee of vigilance of the parish of east feliciana offered in the louisville journal of october fifteenth eighteen thirty five fifty thousand dollars to any person who would deliver into their hands arthur tappan of new york at a public meeting at mount Meigs, alabama august thirteenth eighteen thirty six the hon bedford Guinness in the chair a reward of fifty thousand dollars was offered for the apprehension of the same arthur tappan or of leroy sunderland a methodist clergyman of new york of course as none of these persons could be seized except in violation of the laws of the state where they were citizens this was offering a public reward for an act of felony throughout all southern states associations were formed called committees of vigilance for the taking of measures for suppressing abolition opinions and for the punishment by lynch law of suspected persons At Charleston, South Carolina, a mob of this description forced open the post office, and made a general inspection, at their pleasure, of its contents, and whatever publication they found there, which they considered to be of a dangerous and anti-slavery tendency, they made a public bonfire of, in the street. A large public meeting was held, a few days afterwards, to complete the preparation for excluding anti-slavery principles from publication and for ferreting out persons suspected of abolitionism that they might be subjected to lynch law similar popular meetings were held through the southern and western states at one of these held in clinton mississippi in the year eighteen thirty five the following resolutions were passed resolved that slavery through the south and west is not felt as an evil moral or political but it is recognized in reference to the actual and not to any utopian condition of our slaves as a blessing both to master and slave resolved that it is our decided opinion that any individual who dares to circulate with a view to effectuate the designs of the abolitionists any of the incendiary tracts or newspapers now in a course of transmission to this country is justly worthy in the sight of god and man of immediate death And we doubt not that such would be the punishment of any such offender in any part of the State of Mississippi where he may be found. Resolved, that the clergy of the State of Mississippi be hereby recommended at once to take a stand upon this subject, and that their further silence in relation thereto at this crisis will, in our opinion, be subject to serious censure. The treatment to which persons were exposed, when taken up by any of these vigilance committees, as suspected of anti-slavery sentiments, may be gathered from the following account. The writer has a distinct recollection of the circumstances at the present time, as the victim of this injustice was a member of the seminary, then under the care of her father. Amos Dresser, now a missionary in Jamaica, was a theological student at Lane Seminary near Cincinnati, In the vacation, August 1835, he undertook to sell Bibles in the State of Tennessee, with a view to raise means further to continue his studios. Whilst there, he fell under suspicion of being an abolitionist, was arrested by the Vigilance Committee whilst attending a religious meeting in the neighborhood of Nashville, the capital of the State, and, after an afternoon and evening's inquisition, condemned to receive twenty lashes on his naked body. The sentence was executed on him, between eleven and twelve o'clock on Saturday night, in the presence of most of the Committee, and of an infuriated and blaspheming mob. The Vigilance Committee, an unlawful association, consisted of sixty persons. Of these, twenty-seven were members of churches, one a religious teacher, another the Elder, who but a few days before, in the Presbyterian Church, handed Mr. Dresser the bread and wine at the communion of the Lord's Supper. It will readily be seen that the principle involved in such proceedings as these involves more than the question of slavery. The question was, in fact, this, whether it is so important to hold African slaves that it is proper to deprive free Americans of the liberty of conscience and liberty of speech and liberty of the press in order to do it. It is easy to see that very serious changes would be made in the government of a country by the admission of this principle, because it is quite plain that, if all these principles of our free government may be given up for one thing, they may for another, and that its ultimate tendency is to destroy entirely that freedom of opinion and thought which is considered to be the distinguishing excellence of American institutions. The question now is, did the church join with the world in thinking the institution of slavery so important and desirable as to lead them to look with approbation upon lynch law and the sacrifice of the rights of free inquiry we answer the reader by submitting the following facts and quotations at the large meeting which we have described above in charleston south carolina the charleston courier informs us that the clergy of all denominations attended in a body lending their sanction to the proceedings and adding by their presence to the impressive character of the scene there can be no doubt that the presence of the clergy of all denominations in a body at a meeting held for such a purpose was an impressive scene truly at this meeting it was resolved that the thanks of this meeting are due to the reverend gentlemen of the clergy in this city who have so promptly and so effectually responded to public sentiment by suspending their schools in which the free colored population were taught and that this meeting deem it a patriotic action, worthy of all praise, and proper to be imitated by other teachers of similar schools throughout the State." The question here arises whether their Lord, at the Day of Judgment, will comment on their actions in a similar strain. The alarm of the Virginia slaveholders was not less, nor were the clergy in the city of Richmond, the capital, less prompt than the clergy in Charleston to respond to public sentiment. Accordingly, on the twenty-ninth of July, they assembled together, and resolved unanimously that we earnestly deprecate the unwarrantable and highly improper interference of the people of any other State with the domestic relations of Master and Slave, that the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and His Apostles, in not interfering with the question of slavery, but uniformly recognizing the relations of Master and Servant, and giving full and affectionate instruction to both, is worthy of the imitation of all ministers of the Gospel, that we will not patronize nor receive any pamphlet or newspaper of the anti-slavery societies, and that we will discountenance the circulation of all such papers in the community. The Rev. J. C. Postel, a Methodist minister of South Carolina, concludes a very violent letter to the editor of Zion's Watchman, a Methodist anti-slavery paper published in New York, in the following manner the reader will see that this taunt is an allusion to the offer of fifty thousand dollars for his body at the south which we have given before but if you desire to educate the slaves i will tell you how to raise the money without editing zion's watchman you and old arthur tappan come out to the south this winter and they will raise one hundred thousand dollars for you new orleans itself will be pledged for it desiring no further acquaintance with you and never expecting to see you but once in time or eternity that is at the judgment i subscribe myself the friend of the bible and the opposer of abolitionists j c pastel orangeburg july twenty first eighteen thirty six the rev thomas s witherspoon a member of the presbyterian church writing to the editor of the emancipator says i draw my warrant from the scriptures of the old and new testament to hold the slave in bondage. The principle of holding the heathen in bondage is recognized by God. When the tardy process of the law is too long in redressing our grievances, we of the South have adopted the summary remedy of Judge Lynch, and really I think it one of the most wholesome and salutary remedies for the malady of Northern fanaticism that can be applied. And no doubt my worthy friend, the editor of The Emancipator and Human Rights, Would feel the better of its enforcement, provided he had a Southern administrator. I go to the Bible for my warrant in all moral matters. Let your emissaries dare venture to cross the Potomac, and I cannot promise you that their fate will be less than Hammond's. Then beware how you goad and insulted but magnanimous people to deeds of desperation." The Rev. Robert N. Anderson, also a member of the Presbyterian Church, says in a letter to the Sessions of the Presbyterian Congregations, within the bounds of the West Hanover Presbytery, At the approaching stated meeting of our Presbytery, I design to offer a preamble and string of resolutions on the subject of the use of wine in the Lord's Supper, and also a preamble and string of resolutions on the subject of the treasonable and abominably wicked interference of the Northern and Eastern fanatics with our political and civil rights, our property, and our domestic concerns, You are aware that our clergy, whether with or without reason, are more suspected by the public than the clergy of other denominations. Now, dear Christian brethren, I humbly express it as my earnest wish that you quit yourselves like men. If there be any stray goat of a minister among you, tainted with the bloodhound principles of abolitionism, let him be ferreted out, silenced, excommunicated, and left to the public to dispose of him in other respects your affectionate brother in the lord robert n anderson the reverend william s Plummer, d d of richmond a member of the old school presbyterian church is another instance of the same sort he was absent from richmond at the time the clergy in that city purged themselves in a body from the charge of being favorably disposed to abolition on his return he lost no time in communicating to the chairman of the committee of correspondence his agreement with his clerical brethren. The passages quoted occur in his letter to the chairman. I have carefully watched this matter from its earliest existence, and everything I have seen or heard of its character, both from its patrons and its enemies, has confirmed me beyond repentance in the belief that, let the character of abolitionists be what it may in the sight of the judge of all the earth, This is the most meddlesome, impudent, reckless, fierce, and wicked excitement I ever saw. If abolitionists will set the country in a blaze, it is but fair that they should receive the first warming at the fire. Lastly, abolitionists are like infidels, wholly unaddicted to martyrdom for opinion's sake. Let them understand that they will be caught, lynched, if they come among us, and they will take good heed to keep out of our way there is not one man among them who has any more idea of shedding his blood in this cause than he has of making war on the grand turk the rev dr hill of virginia said in the new school assembly the abolitionists have made the servitude of the slave harder if i could tell you some of the dirty tricks which these abolitionists have played you would not wonder some of them have been lynched and it served them right these things sufficiently show the estimate which the southern clergy and church have formed and expressed as to the relative value of slavery and the right of free inquiry it shows also that they consider slavery as so important that they can tolerate and encourage acts of lawless violence and risk all the dangers of encouraging mob law for its sake these passages and considerations sufficiently show the stand which the Southern Church takes upon this subject from many of these opinions, shocking as they may appear, some apology may be found in that blinding power of custom and all those deadly educational influences which always attend to the system of slavery and which must necessarily produce a certain obtuseness of the moral sense in the mind of any man who is educated from childhood under them. There is also, in the habits of mind formed under a system which is supported by continual resort to force and violence, a necessary deadening of sensibility to the evils of force and violence, as applied to other subjects. The whole style of civilization which is formed under such an institution has been not unaptly denominated by a popular writer the Bowie-knife style and we must not be surprised at its producing a peculiarly martial cast of religious character and ideas very much at variance with the spirit of the gospel a religious man born and educated at the south has all these difficulties to contend with in elevating himself to the true spirit of the gospel it was said by one that after the reformation The best of men, being educated under a system of despotism and force, and accustomed from childhood to have force, and not argument, made the test of opinion, came to look upon all controversies very much in a Smithfield light, the question being not as to the propriety of burning heretics, but as to which party ought to be burned. The system of slavery is a simple retrogression of society to the worst abuses of the Middle Ages, We must not therefore be surprised to find the opinions and practices of the Middle Ages as to civil and religious toleration prevailing. However much we may reprobate and deplore those unworthy views of God and religion which are implied in such declarations as are here recorded, however blasphemous and absurd they may appear, still it is apparent that their authors uttered them with sincerity, and this is the most melancholy feature of the case, They are as sincere as Paul when he breathed out threatenings and slaughter, and when he thought within himself that he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. They are as sincere as the Brahmin or Hindu, conscientiously supporting a religion of cruelty and blood. They are as sincere as many enlightened, scholar-like, and Christian men in modern Europe, who, born and bred under systems of civil and religious despotism, And having them entwined with all their dearest associations of home and country and having all their habits of thought and feeling biased by them do most conscientiously defend them there is something in conscientious conviction even in the case of the worst kind of opinions which is not without a certain degree of respectability that the religion expressed by the declarations which we have quoted is as truly anti-christ as the religion of the church of rome it is presumed no sensible person out of the sphere of american influences will deny that there may be very sincere christians under this system of religion with all its false principles and all its disadvantageous influences liberality must concede the church of rome has had its fenelon its thomas a kempis and the southern church which has adopted these principles has had men who have risen above the level of their system AT THE TIME OF THE REFORMATION, AND NOW, THE CHURCH OF ROME HAD IN ITS BOSOM THOUSANDS OF PRAYING, DEVOTED, HUMBLE CHRISTIANS, WHICH, LIKE FLOWERS IN THE CLEFTS OF ROCKS, COULD BE COUNTED BY NO EYE SAVE GOD'S ALONE. AND SO, AMID THE RIFTS AND GLACIERS OF THIS HORRIBLE SPIRITUAL AND TEMPORAL DESPOTISM, WE HOPE are BLOOMING FLOWERS OF PARADISE, PATIENT, PRAYERFUL, AND SELF-DENYING CHRISTIANS, and it is the deepest grief in attacking the dreadful system under which they have been born and brought up that violence must be done to their cherished feelings and associations in another and better world perhaps they may appreciate the motives of those who do this but now another consideration comes to the mind these southern christians have been united in ecclesiastical relations with christians of the northern and free states meeting with them by their representatives yearly in their various ecclesiastical assemblies one might hope in case of such a union that those debasing views of christianity and that deadness of public sentiment which were the inevitable result of an education under the slave system might have been qualified by intercourse with christians in free states who having grown up under free institutions would naturally be supposed to feel the utmost abhorrence of such sentiments One would have supposed that the church and clergy of the Free States would naturally have used the most strenuous endeavors, by all the means in their power, to convince their brethren of errors so dishonorable to Christianity, and tending to such dreadful practical results. One would have supposed also that, failing to convince their brethren, they would have felt it due to Christianity to clear themselves of all complicity with these sentiments, by the most solemn, earnest, and reiterated protests. Let us now inquire what has, in fact, been the course of the Northern Church on this subject. Previous to making this inquiry, let us review the declarations that have been made in the Southern Church, and see what principles have been established by them. 1. That slavery is an innocent and lawful relation, as much as that of parent and child, husband and wife, and any other lawful relation of society. Harmony Presbyterian, South Carolina. 2. That it is consistent with the most fraternal regard for the good of the slave. Charleston Union Presbytery, South Carolina. 3. That masters ought not to be disciplined for selling slaves without their consent. New School Presbyterian Church, Petersburg, Virginia. 4. That the right to buy, sell, and hold men for purposes of gain, was given by express permission of God. James Smiley and his Presbyteries. 5. That the laws which forbid the education of the slave are right, and meet the approbation of the reflecting part of the Christian community. 6. That the fact of slavery is not a question of morals at all, but is purely one of political economy. Charleston Baptist Association. 7 the right of masters to dispose of the time of their slaves has been distinctly recognized by the creator of all things ibid. 8 that slavery as it exists in these united states is not a moral evil georgia conference methodist 9 that without a new revelation from heaven no man is entitled to pronounce slavery wrong 10 that the separation of slaves by sale should be regarded as separation by death and the parties allowed to marry again shiloh baptist association and savannah river association eleven that the testimony of colored members of the churches shall not be taken against a white person methodist church in addition it has been plainly avowed by the expressed principles and practice of christians of various denominations that they regard it right and proper to put down all inquiry upon this subject by Lynch law. One would have imagined that these principles were sufficiently extraordinary, as coming from the professors of the religion of Christ, to have excited a good deal of attention in their northern brethren. It also must be seen that, as principles, they are principles of very extensive application, underlying the whole foundations of religion and morality. If not true, they were certainly heresies of no ordinary magnitude, involving no ordinary results. Let us now return to our inquiry as to the course of the Northern Church in relation to them. End of Part 4. Chapter 1. Influence of the American Church on Slavery. Part 2.